In the year 1738, in Northampton, Massachusetts, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon series through 1 Corinthians 13, the most famous and often quoted chapter in Scripture on the nature of true Christian love. And about a century after his death, Edwards' great-great-great-grandson collected those 15 sermon manuscripts and sent them to press under the title, Charity and Its Fruits. The first edition of those sermons helped to shape the perception of Edwards' theology and has since become one of his key works. In 2012, over a quarter of a millennia after the sermons were originally preached, Crossway released an edition of Charity and Its Fruits edited by Kyle Strobel, a scholar with a particular focus and passion for Edwards' theology. This new edition of Charity includes a substantial introduction and conclusion, along with text boxes scattered throughout the work to explain arcane terminology and for Strobel to interrupt the modern reader briefly to underline and clarify key points along the way. I recently talked with Strobel on the phone from his Phoenix office at Grand Canyon University, where he teaches, to talk about Edwards' sermons and his new edition of Charity and Its Fruits. We began by talking about Edwards' understanding of love, and of course this means we began where all love begins, in our triune God. Well, for Edwards, love is so important because God is the God of love. And therefore, to understand the reality of the Christian life, First and foremost, we have to understand what is love and how do we think about that. And the key move for him is going to be that because God is love, love exists. And it it exists as a person. And what we come to find out is not only exists in God's life, it exists specifically as God's spirit. And and that means that the spirit is, in his words, infused within us, that, that, that life itself, love itself has been infused, which means Everything should alter. It should alter our vision of reality. It should alter um, our relationships. It should uncover vice and virtue as, as well. And, and it, it should kind of start this chain reaction that permeates every, every part of who we are. Step back for a moment and explain this Trinitarian theology of Jonathan Edwards by explaining for us the divine love, uh, this divine love as it's passed between the Father and the Son. Well, for Edwards, um, God's life is really the Father gazing upon the Son and the Son gazing upon the Father and love emanating between them. The tradition has called that the beatific vision, as did Edwards, as did Owen, did Calvin. And basically, God's life is the Father and Son existing in love. Now, that ends up kind of funneling through Edwards' theology in a variety of ways. It means that when Christ takes on flesh and, and dwells among us, that what that looks like is that the second number of the Trinity, the Son, loves this human person so much, not that it's a different person from him, but that he loves so much that it binds himself to his own life. So. The, the, the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ are bound together in the Spirit, and therefore bound together as love. And that also means that when we are called to be in Christ, what is actually going on is that, that Christ's love actually pulls us into union with Him, and that love itself is the Spirit. And so the Spirit takes on this role of, of, of binding. Um, God's life is, is bound together in the love of the Spirit, Christ himself, the person of Christ, is, um, has his natures bound together in the Spirit. Um, we are bound to Christ in the Spirit, and then therefore Christians are bound to one another in the Spirit as well. And, 
I mean, traditionally, a lot of a lot of theologians from Augustine on have done that. Um, Edwards does it a little more thoroughly than most, maybe. And for him, I think I think it's just key to remember that, as as abstract as that notion sounds, that this is also just the reality of love. Love is a binding kind of a thing. And so, when it comes to the atonement, what happens is that the kinds of questions Edwards begin to ask are what kind of love could bind us to the Son to this degree that the Father would accept his um, kind of our payment to be put on Christ, and it's infinite, that Christ loves us to an infinite degree, and because Christ is infinitely worthy and loved by the Father, the Father receives us as his own. When I think of the practice of Christian charity, of love, which is what Edwards is addressing throughout Charity and Its Fruits, I think of, of personal holiness as a process of overcoming personal sin so that I will become a loving person. I tend to think of holiness as a means to love. Edwards seems to look at love as, as the end of holiness, or, or love as the full expression of holiness. Is love the end of holiness? Is love the means of displaying holiness? How do we think about these, these types of connections? Yeah, well, well the short answer would be yes. <laughs> It's the, both means and the end, in a sense. For Edwards, similarly to love, holiness, holiness, and this is true of the tradition in general as well, holiness is not a human term, but a God term. And so if we, you know, maintaining the creator-creature distinction pretty heavily, we're saying holiness is a term that refers to God. Now, so when, when God calls us to be holy as I am holy, the question is, well, what, what does that mean? And it means that we participate in his holiness as we partake in Christ and as we are indwelt by the Spirit. And so God gives us his own holiness, and, and the Spirit is also called holiness itself in, in Edwards' thought. And by giving us the Spirit of holiness, really he's, he's binding us into his life of holiness. And so we share in that. We participate in it. It's, 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 it is also um, imputed to us. Um, it is also alien to us. And, and because of that, and what ends up happening is that the, the focal point of sanctification is the same reality, the same kind of, um, however spiritual, existential reality as salvation itself. It, it is all at the cross receiving, having nothing to bring but ourselves, um, because it's the kind of thing that's always received. And so for Edwards, dependence is going to be the key word. And so his, his whole understanding of, of, um, of spirituality, uh, of the Christian life, of piety, is learning to depend fully on God. And specifically, that's going to be depending fully on the grace of God um, to, to, to form us. And, and really, ultimately, I mean, a, a better way to put it might be, a more helpful way might be, that for Edwards, if you've read Edwards much, one of the first things people generally notice is that Edwards is an incredibly visual theologian. Everything is read through visual imagery. And the reason for that, ultimately, is that the beatific vision is the model of the Trinity he's using. Um, no one, um, I'm, actually, I'm publishing a, a monograph on that right now, it's coming out in December, no one's noticed that. Um, but that's one of the things I've, I've, I've tried to emphasize, is that we've missed this, this key aspect of Edward's thought. And, um, religious affections only begins to make sense once you realize that his doctrine of God is based on um, the beatific vision. And the reason that that's true is, is because when you push everything into a visual mold like he has, um, you realize, well, the Reformed and the Puritans always said that we are pilgrims here because we live by faith, 
and then we arrive in heaven, and then we live by sight. Edwards didn't quite agree with that, actually. He thought that, that we separated those two realms out a little too much, that really it's the same kind of reality. The difference is in heaven we see perfectly, here we see through a glass darkly. Um, but we're still seeing as dark as it is. And so that's why everything's pushed into this mold of, of these visual terms. And so really what's happening in the Christian life is we're coming to recognize what beauty is. And we're coming to realize that everything that we thought was beautiful is actually ugliness. And, and once we understand that part of his thought, we realize a lot of the Christian life becomes, like, like you said, I'm, I'm recognizing that these, these things, these idols I have, are, are, are ugly, and, and that as I depend on God and hand myself over to him, um, he unveils to me, he gives me eyes to see and ears to hear. And I begin to recognize and, and, and that, that holiness is in fact beautiful, that God's beautiful. And as God reorients my vision more and more, um, that is what comes, that, that what in a sense leads us to what we might call holiness. But really what happens when we become holy is that we just get the right eyes. And this is what religious affections is about. Once we have eyes to see, our heart is set alive. Um, and that's what beauty does. When you see something beautiful, it, the words we talk about beauty with, it moves us. That's, that's what Edwards was talking about, the religious affections. It's, it's seeing God and being moved deeply by who he is and what he has done. And so the sanctification process is going to look like that, basically. So once we have eyes to see and our hearts are set alive, we, we continue to grow here. Uh, we are growing to see more of uh, the attraction of God's splendor, of his holiness. The beauty of God's holiness is something that our, our wayward hearts must be perpetually reoriented towards, or so it seems to me. So, so what does growth look like here? How is the beatific vision for Edwards played out in the, in the Christian life? Yeah, it's, it's in a sense that one way um, to talk about it would be to talk about it as we are sl- like our vision is becoming more and more clear. Um, and Edwards talks about this quite a bit in terms of, you know, I mean, it's similar to Pilgrim's progress, you know, as we, pro- as we progress. I mean, you know, Pilgrim comes to the, or Christian comes to the point, I can't remember who's journeying with Christian at this point, but he comes to four shepherds at one point. And the four shepherds um, have this kind of, um, device, this telescope device to take a look at the heavenly city and see the holy gates. It's supposed to be an encouragement. And when, when, when Christian holds it, his hands shake so much, it, the vision is all blurry. And, and of course, those, the four shepherds represent um, the four um, virtues of discernment. And the idea being, once you grow in wisdom and discernment, you have eyes to set your, you have, your, your eyes can be set on the goal of the Christian life, and therefore you journey well. You're wise in that sense. I think that, that was true in almost all Puritan thought, and it's, I think particularly true in Edwards, that um, we are on a journey of, of increasing vision, um, increasing sight, that the more we come to know God, the more we can read creation as Christians, um, the more we can hear God's voice um, everywhere, in Scripture, of course, but, but in creation as well. Edwards was, of course, a huge lover of nature, and um, and, and it's because he, he understood God as, as proclaiming, but people not having ears to hear or eyes to see it. And so really the, the kind of healing that comes, the, the new birth for Edwards in a lot of ways is when he gives the Spirit, he gives illumination. 
and suddenly beauty's illumined to the Christian, and the Christian recognizes it as beautiful and, and is inclined towards it, is affected deeply by it. It seems like for Edwards, if we could love perfectly, our lives would be filled with pure joy. I- explain the place of the affections for Edwards and this process of learning to love God, learning to love others, and how the affections are tied to our charity. Yeah, well, for Edwards, everything is effective in some, in some capacity. Um, everything. Because for him, any kind of, of knowledge is, is received and moves the heart to some degree. Now, most of the knowledge we have doesn't move it much. It barely moves it at all, so we don't notice it. Um, religious knowledge entails seeing in, a, and seeing in a real sense God to some capacity. You see him in Christ. Um, and of course, that's some kind of spiritual sight since we're not physically looking at Christ. And, um, and Edwards talks about this quite a bit. It's when the disciples recognized that, that Jesus was grace and truth, that was them seeing in a real sense who he actually was. And because they're seeing it, what happens is their, their will, um, their heart moves. And, and so when he talks about religious affections, a religious affection is simply your will being kind of inclined towards something, in Edwards' words, vigorously. Um, he recognizes your heart's inclined towards things all the time. It's just not necessarily vigorous. What makes it religious is that it's inclined towards God rather than something else. And so um, it all attaches to Edwards. I mean, when, when you realize Edwards' theology, and when you realize the big story of Edwards' theology, everything falls into place rather easily and quickly. And so if you, if you recognize that God's life is the life of love, um, the life of happiness, the life of delight, and, and really, when I, when I talked about the beatific vision, I was, you know, that's, that's what the beatific vision always has been for the tradition. It, it, it was when you come into the presence of God, you are made fully alive. It, it, the beatific meant delight. Edwards actually calls the beatific vision at one point the happifying sight. Um, it's the, the sight that makes one happy and sets you alive. Well, if that's God's life, and in the gospel what happened is we are kind of pulled into that life, into union with Christ, then what the Christian life entails, and what the Christian life is, is journeying towards the day when we will experience God in that way fully and be made fully alive. The, the, the word Edwards likes to use of the phrase is, we will become pure flame, that we will be so set on fire by that vision of God, by that, that, by that presence of God, um, that we will kind of take on more of who he is and it's got his pure fire. We, we become kind of flame in that sense. And so when you, when you, when you recognize that the beginning, if we can talk about God as the beginning, <laughs> um, as his life is this, this vision of, well, a vision that makes God infinitely happy, as God the Father gazes on the Son, as the Son gazes upon the Father in the love of the Spirit. And as we realize the, the goal, consummation of all things, is um, the, the church being brought into that and enjoying that vision and being made fully alive, fully joyful, fully happy, fully full. And we can kind of use those two to bracket, well, the Christian life is just that same thing, just through a glass darkly. Um, we don't see clearly now, um, but we still see in some capacity. And, and as we come to have that sight, we more, come more and more to have our heart moved with what moves God's heart. We could put it that way. The final sermon in the series is a, is a profound one. Heaven is a world of love. Edwards paints a picture of heaven where we view the eternal delight of the Father and the Son 
via the Spirit, and the love of the saints towards God and, and towards one another, that entire picture is presented for us. Flesh out uh, for, for Edwards what he paints in this incredible vision of eternity. Yeah. Well, well what's key is, okay, so heaven is, is a world of love simply because God is the fountain of love. And, and so heaven is just descriptive of um, the presence of God. And when you're in God's presence, you exist within his fountain of love, that God's overflowing of love, and you are caught up in it. And what Edwards is trying to remind us there is that we are still, as believers, we are already caught up in that fountain of love. It's just not fully. Um, we, we, you know, if you could think of it as like, he, he actually will talk about being kind of, it's really unusual terminology, but he talks about being kind of tossed into this infinite ocean of love that is God. And we can worry about that language, but if we understand what he's saying, it makes sense. We're not disappearing into God. This is not some kind of weird Eastern kind of <laughs> vision of mysticism where you're disappearing into God, but it's God's presence that makes you fully alive. Um, and that's what his vision of glory is. Edward's understanding of glory is that we receive God's glory and therefore become fully alive because we emanate it back to him. Likewise, in his love, when we go to heaven, heaven is the world of love because we, we exist within this fountain of love and therefore become loving beings. Um, so we have loving God and loving neighbor tied together in perfection in heaven. Well, well, here we find that exact same thing. It's just broken. Um, we are the lovers of God, and, and it is a broken love. Um, and we, we are the lovers of others, but of course it's, it's a broken kind of love as well. And so what, what Edwards is, is really trying to do, I believe, in almost everything he does, is he's trying to constantly realign the Christian to God. Everything for him must revolve around God. That God is the, the um, you know, that we, we only understand who we are and what we're doing as we find ourselves in orbit around the God of love. And so um, the way I talk about this in, in the book I'm working on, on Edwards and the Christian life, is that if you think of your heart like a compass, um, Edward is trying to, to, to realign, to recalibrate the compass to true north, which is God. And once that happens, east, west, south, it can all fall into place. Um, the problem is we, we continually try to realign it, um, you know, to, to point to us in some way and, and make God, you know, derivative of us. Um, but, you know, this, when, you, when, you, when you grasp what Edward is doing and how he understands things, suddenly his preaching becomes clear because, you know, if, for Edwards, the way, the only solution is seeing God. The only solution is looking at Jesus and realizing that he did this for me. It's, it's the shift that takes place in regeneration where you look at the cross as a horrific event, and then suddenly you look at it as a beautiful event because it was done for me and for my sin, for my depravity. For my... And, and so what Edwards ends up doing when he preaches is he, he's much more of a painter with words than anything else. He, when he preaches, he, he's, he's, he's trying to give the, his congregation a picture to look at. Um, and that's why his sermon, uh, sermons are constantly kind of lauded by literary scholars, <laughs> because he, he has this capacity to paint with these words, these, 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 this incredible vision that implants in your mind. And what he's trying to do is say, is, is say set your eyes beyond the physical reality, but the spiritual reality here. So when you're looking at Jesus, like, you know, look at him as the disciples saw him as grace and truth, not as the Pharisees saw him. They were all looking at the same thing. They, they saw the same human person, but there was a spiritual reality present that can be discerned with spiritual sight, Edwards will say. 
And so that spiritual sight is what the Spirit offers in illumination. And as we, as we kind of see with that spiritual sight, um, God realigns our hearts to receive from Him fully and very suddenly recalibrates our whole person around Him. At various places in charity, Edwards says that the life of love brings peace. Edwards uses phrases like perfect tranquility. He talks about love as that which banishes all disturbances, talks about the sweetness and the composition that that this life of love brings to the soul. He even says where love reigns, quote, nothing can raise a storm, end quote. Now, I'm assuming that this is not a circumstantial stillness. I mean, the life of love is a very busy life. It's a self-giving life. What does Edwards mean when he says that a life of love is a life of stillness? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Edwards, when he talks about sin, he 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 likes to use image of, of the heart as a, he'll say at one point, the heart's like a tempestuous ocean. Um, and again, highly visual. You get this image of the stormy sea. And he starts talking about this, the problem with vice. Vice brings chaos to the heart. Whereas love brings stillness to the heart. And that stillness is um, the only, you know, it's it's a very hard thing to describe. The, the, the term I try to use because um, and it's taken from the spiritual tradition outside of Edwards' tradition, but I find it a really helpful term is recollection. And the way that's used is not to remember something, to recollect it, but to be recollected. So your whole person is caught up in who Christ is. And so for the Christian, practically speaking, you know, if, if a pastor um, suddenly or maybe very subconsciously forgets what his calling is and tries to start generating change, through his own self-power. His heart will become a tempestuous ocean. But the pastor who stands before the glory of God and who's able to ground his vocation and identity in the love of God, his heart is still. He might be living in a chaotic realm. He might be living a busy life in a lot of ways, but his heart is still because his heart is recollected around who God is and who he is. And that, that really ties in to the theme um, found everywhere. I mean, Calvin maybe more than most, but Edward certainly as well, the, the idea that knowledge of God and knowledge of self are tied together. That for him, the heart is still because it, it knows itself as a child of God. Um, your heart no longer has to self-generate an identity to the world. Um, your heart no longer has to convince everyone else around you that you're valuable. Um, your heart recognizes that it's love because it recognizes who you are and who God is and, and ultimately what God has done. Um, and this is why for Edwards, as he does talk about the life of holiness, it, I think for a lot of people it can almost seem depressing because he continually asks you to, to, to dive into your depravity, to, to meditate on your brokenness, to, to, to don't forget your sins. Um, God has forgotten them, praise God, but you don't forget them. <laughs> and he's always worried that Christians are going to forget their, how much they're dependent upon God. And so he, he, it, it, some of the ways he describes growth in life might seem, you know, difficult. You know, he talks about when I'm, when he's more mature, he looks back in his life and he says, I now realize I was, I was too hard on myself. He says at some points and what basically what I considered maturity was really just fleshly. And it's a lesson I think a lot of us have to learn that, that growth is something where we, we don't we actually a lot of times experience more of our depravity 
because the goal is dependence. The goal's a, the further goal is to grasp wholly onto God and not somehow to be in a place where now we feel like we can be independent of him, which is the great fear that Edwards would have, that people would think, okay, now I'm finally in a place where I can live on my own. It's kind of like how we, how we in America consider what kids do, right? They, you depend on someone until a certain degree, and then you kick you out of the nest, and you're independent. And, of course, for Edwards, no, no, that's, that's the great lie. At one point in charity, uh, Edwards writes this, this statement, quote, A man of a right spirit is not a narrow private spirit, but he is greatly concerned for the good of the public community to which he belongs, and particularly of the town where he dwells, end quote. So Edwards is pretty strong in his emphasis on public love, not just private love. Speaking hypothetically, in your best guess, given today's political climate, would Edwards be preaching sermons on social issues? Would he be involved in politics? What would be this public spirit, and what what would it look like for Edwards? Yeah, that is a really hard question. I I've, I wonder this this kind of thing all the time. Um, you know, if, if if I could somehow transport Edwards here and show him around a bit, what what would be his response? And you know, I think for Edwards, he I, I'm certainly no expert in his political thought, and he had a shocking amount to say politically, actually. Um, he wrote and thought a lot about it, but for him, the, the, there was two key kind of mechanisms for growth and change in the world. And they were connected. There is conversion, which is setting the heart back to its God. And, and that was on the micro level. That's individuals, of course, but then revival was the macro version of the micro. So, um, the macro level of conversion is revival. And, and of course, as a post-millennialist, I mean, he believed that God's plan to transform reality was through revival, that revivals would break out. And so Edwards is always going to refocus the question, no matter what the question is, on the heart of individuals and that the need of the heart to be met by God. And and again, he's going he's to cast it all around religious affection, right? We we need people who are deeply affected by God because they've actually seen and known and understood who he is and who they are. And so no matter what the issues are, Edward is going to be asking questions about what does this mean and look like. Now, he was very quick to, to, to turn to his people and say, we are the, you know, a visible, uh, you know, in a, way, a symbol of God's working in the world. And so if, if people look at us, and say, wow, look, they're not charitable. They're not loving. They're not, we are, we are, we are creating further blinders and we will be held accountable for that. And so when he turned to questions, as, as I, as I understand, when he turned to more questions like social justice for him, it was a call to be the, again, to paint a picture for the world of who Christ is so that we can, we can be, a further means for them to see what he's about. And as they see, then they can be kind of set alive to, to, to the life of God. I want to talk about self-love for a moment. Edwards writes the following, quote, that a man should love his own happiness is necessary to his nature. The saints love their own happiness, yea, those that are perfect in holiness. The saints and angels in heaven love their own happiness. End quote. So self-love is a good thing. Self-love is an eternal thing. So how do, we, how do these things work together? How can self-focused love 
coexist with self-sacrificing love? Yeah. Well, first, Edward's definition of self-love is a bit different than we most think than most of us think about when we think about it. Because we usually equate self-love with selfishness. What Edwards does is say, no, to love self is to merely, is to simply love what you love, which is just to have a will. So if, if you didn't love yourself, you really wouldn't be fully human because you would lack a will. And so if that's his starting point, which it is, I mean, Edwards is really clear about this, is, is to be human is to love what you love, to have a will. Then to love others, what you're really doing in a way is is kind of pulling them within your life of love. And, and that, that, are, that, that still will have with it components of denying yourself for the sake of loving another. Um, that's not what he means, that, you know, that somehow we couldn't do that. No, no, he, he thinks we can. The key, though, is that attached to the idea of love, of, of, of seeing someone as beautiful, which, again, the visual language, this is going to connect to the idea of love, means that, that our happiness is tied in with that. And so if we, if we talk about, instead of talking about others, because obviously there's all sorts of brokenness in human relationships, but to love God is to be pulled into God's life of love, because God does the same thing. God's his model for this, which is why he, he comes to this. God expands his life of love to incorporate us. And yet, for us, as, as God does that, our life of happiness is attached to it. And this is where, where you're going to get the um, Pastor John's move, right, to talk about how God's happiness and God's glory is tied up in our happiness, that he, he sees them both as one. And really what's, what I think is going on there is this, again, if we talk about who God is, that in God's inner life, Perfect knowledge is attached to perfect love. So, so God's life is perfect self-knowledge. God knows himself perfectly, and in that, he exists in love and delight perfectly. If we're going to come to know God, our knowledge has to be tied to our love. That's, that's the message of religious affections. To know God is to be moved by him in love. And so, likewise, as we, as we come to love others, our, again, our, and, and any, really, as we come to any kind of knowledge, our heart isn't detached from that, but it's attached to it. And so loving others includes our own happiness. It, I mean, really, that is where our happiness comes alive, is as we are connected to others in love. And, and really, God's the model for that. Um, Edwards loved to use God as a model for things like this. Um, his ethics is built on the fact that God is the example. So if, or his, sorry, not his, well, his ethics is too, but his understanding of freedom, right? Um, you know, God is perfectly good, and therefore God acts in a way that's perfectly good. And so, and that doesn't mean that God is somehow less good because he can't act according, against his nature, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, that's, that's, Edwards likes to make those arguments because if, if, if it makes sense in, for who God is. And really, to understand Edwards well, I think we, we really have to get his soteriology. That once you say, as he says, that, for instance, as, I, you, know, as you read in the chapter, the, the new Crossway book on justification, that Christ is the justified one. And we only are justified as we come to, as we come to be united to Christ. Because that's where, that is where justification is. 
It's in him. And then because God is holiness, the only way to, to, to be holy is to, to be in him. And so he, he, by pushing everything back onto God and, and who he is and what, he, and what he's about, it means that, that we are going to be, we must be caught up into God's own life through the Son by the Spirit. And as we commune in him, we come to take on that reality. And for Edwards, that meant the reality is not just knowing him, but having our love attached to that knowledge. For him, there was no other way to think about it, as if there's some way to, to, to love God or to love others, where, where you're, you're somehow your own happiness, your own willing could be ignored. What wouldn't make any sense. You go against the nature of who God is and what God does. So in a way, selfishness and self-centeredness is the soul folding over onto itself. I mean, turning away from God is turning away from happiness, turning away from love, and this creates something of a, a hopeless spiral. Yeah, well, and it's, it's idolatry in the, in, in, in the purest form, because what it's denying is that happiness can be generated. And for Edwards, happiness exists somewhere. And not only does it exist somewhere, it exists as someone, as God. Um, and so the person who's what we would call selfish or self-centered is attempting to create what can only be found in God's life. You've invested a lot of time in studying Edwards, obviously, and in studying charity and its fruits. At what point in your life do you find that you are most reminded of the lessons from Edwards' book? When do, you, when do those lessons appear in real-life situations, tapping you on the shoulder, uh, telling you to, to remember something that you learned from Edwards? You know, for me, one of the most helpful things, and I, I, this is something I've learned from a variety of figures, um, and, and Edwards one of them, but is the self-knowledge piece. Because I feel like once I become aware of myself, once I, once I am kind of tuned in to just attend to how I respond to reality, to how I respond to people, to life, I, I realize how much of my life is vice masquerading as virtue. And, and the one, I remember reading a sermon when I was working on charity, there's a, he has the, you know, um, you know, love does not envy. So he has that, that whole sermon. And I found a different sermon he wrote on envy. And I remember him just outlining what the person who envious is doing. And basically it was how they lie to themselves. And, and he says that, you know, what happens when you're envying is one of the first things you do is you basically demonize the person you're, you envy. You see their success and think, oh, wait, they're not, they're not kind of mature enough to handle that. I'm the one who should have had that. And then you, and, and the whole time he, he's arguing, look how easy it is to kind of lift yourself above other people and, and you're, you, the whole time you're acting, you think you're acting in a virtuous way. You're, you're helping them. I should really take that burden away from them because they really can't handle it. And he's showing how we belittle other people, how we um, act in a way that is elitist, that is prideful, that is greedy. That is, there's all this vice at work, but it, it masquerades as virtue and no one notices. And to be honest, you know, I have, you know, I feel blessed by the fact that I've gotten to do the kind of education I've gotten to do. And that for me has always been very humbling, you know, to, as you know, you know, you read Owen, you read Edwards, you read these guys and it's just humbling because you just realize how little, you know, and how little you understand. And I just feel overwhelmed by that. And I feel like as I read Edwards and you overwhelmed by the, the spiritual insight and depth, the biblical depth, the theological depth, 
and what I feel like it's a lot, it then does is it allows me to, to be more humble when I interact with others, to, to be merciful, to not turn to envy. So now though, when I'm, 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 now that I'm aware of those things, I'm aware of how vice works itself out in you. I'm aware of how it masquerades, how, how self-deception um, kind of takes our eyes off of who God is and replaces it on ourselves. that I can then see these things for what they are and now use them, as, as Edwards would say, as a means of grace. I can use them as a way to, to, to turn to God and to rely on him and again find myself at the foot of the cross. But I think that charity, what's unusual about charity is how much Edwards dives into the way virtue and vice works itself out in your heart. And, and, and this is, you can tell the reason it's so rich is because it's not, it's not mere theological analysis. It's, it comes out of a life that has really meditated on how, how he's a sinner. Not just that he sinned, but how sin has worked itself out. And, you know, one of the things I tell pastors is that one of the, the kind of, one of the, the real gifts that pastors used to bring their congregation is that pastors, because of the way they understood theology and the spiritual life that tied together, was that you, you realize that if you know your own heart and your own depravity, you also know everyone else's heart and their depravity. And so pastors had the ability to break open the hearts of their people and narrate to them their sin from the inside out. And I think it's a lost art. And I think one of the reasons so many people love Edwards now is because he does that. And it's not just, he's not teaching at you any longer, but he's breaking you open where you're, the goal of the sermon isn't simply understanding now, but it's, the goal is actually to bring you to your knees before God. And so it's so much more than just teaching. It's, it's preaching. <laughs> it, it, you know, he is leading you to God and saying the only thing you can do here is, is, is trust and depend on who God is. And he's casting a vision of God as beauty and saying, you know, if you do this, to, to, to really truly rely on this God is where your happiness lies. And of course, it's the way you get there is not the way you want to get there. Because <laughs> your heart's telling you the way to get to happiness is independence, it's using others, it's doing, you know, it's using vice for your own good, building yourself up, all these other things. He's saying, no, it's through, it is through death. <laughs> But as you walk the way of the cross with Christ, what you realize is that this is where happiness lies. You know, it's, it's the classic, um, you must lose your life to save it. And, and saving it for Edwards entails finding your happiness. That was Jonathan Edwards scholar Kyle Strobel from his Phoenix office at Grand Canyon University where he teaches. He edited a new edition of Jonathan Edwards' classic book, Charity and Its Fruits, now available from Crossway Books. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This conversation was recorded on September 7th, 2012. The free Authors on the Line podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or on the web at desiringgod.org backslash blog. My name is Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.